Hi, Jim Kosho here from Dunn Lumber. Welcome to the Dunn Solutions Podcast, where we're committed to providing cutting-edge industry knowledge for the building contractor and trade professional. In this podcast, we'll hear from Judith Miller, founder of J. Miller & Company. Through decades of experience providing bookkeeping and financial services to the remodeling industry, Judith has learned and honed key strategies that have helped her own company and career. Today, she's sharing her strategies and findings, including the difference between success and sustainability, the three primary gears to a healthy company, and her secret weapon when it comes to building a sustainable business model. If you would like further information from Judith, she can be reached at jfmiller at remodelservices.com. For more information on attending future educational events, feel free to email me at jimc at dunlumber.com. Thank you. I am going to be here for a few minutes and I'm going to get to talk to you about a topic that has been brewing in my head for almost the 25 years that I've been working with remodelers around the country. And that is, is there a silver bullet? Todd, do you know the answer? No. Guess what? I found one. Let me, let me do a quick, brief introduction. I have uh, been writing for the Remodeling Magazine since 2002. I write on finances. I started out doing this in 1987. When I got a divorce, I went to work for a small construction company down the street from my house because I wasn't going to leave my two little boys. And that company grew from uh, 350,000 to 17 million in eight years. And I learned construction accounting, and I loved it. I got a D in accounting in college, but suddenly I saw this, this set of data as having the answer to so many questions. How could somebody fail so miserably? They went out of business, they went bankrupt in seven years at 17 million, and two of them had gone to Berkeley and one of them had gone to Stanford. They've been friends since they were 12. Can anybody guess? In fact, I'll give you this new book if anybody can guess why they went bankrupt. Anybody? They didn't know the numbers and they grew too fast. So is anybody here feeling like they're in that position right now? You might be growing too fast? Yes. Well, we're going to talk about the silver bullet. So a silver bullet is a, complica- is a magical solution to a complicated problem. Like how do I build a sustainable, successful remodeling company? And as I said, I have been asking myself that question for almost 30 years now since this company went bankrupt and shouldn't have, except they didn't know what they were doing. That might have something to do with it. So my younger son, who lives in Denver, has an MFA in Shakespearean acting. And I was talking to him today, and he said, so is this a mystery? Are you going to tell him what the silver bullet is at the very, very end of the show? And I went, yeah, that's my point. The silver bullet is the last slide. He said, don't do that. This is not a movie. They're coming to learn something. So I'm going to tell you what the silver bullet is right here off the bat. The silver bullet is you. Now, you probably already knew that. But I'm going to talk to you about the silver bullet that is you that can make this company successful and make this company sustainable over the rest of your life and maybe even beyond But it all starts with you. We're going to talk about the three things, the three gears that I think have to integrate perfectly 
in order to build that foundation. But silver bullet is you. Before we begin, I want to do some definitions. Definitions are really important to me because I believe that we all think we understand the words that other people are saying to us. So if I tell you I think integrity is really, really important, won't you agree? And respect is really, really important, won't you agree? Now, if we drill down and determine how we show respect, how we evidence integrity, so that the people we meet actually know that we're talking about the same definition of integrity or respect, that will help us. That will help us communicate about the same thing on the same level. So I want to define for you success, and I want to explain the five stages of growth, which is actually, actually I'm a one-trick pony. This, is, this has been with me since I started working. The five stages of growth will, I hope, illuminate for you where you are in the magical journey of building a sustainable company. I want to talk about upstream, downstream, and I want to talk about the 80-20 rule. The first definition I want to talk about breaks out success from sustainability. And success, in my mind, is a short-term objective that we can meet. Success is, I'm going to lose 20 pounds. Success is, I'm going to sell $250,000 by the end of July. You can meet those objectives. They're going to be short-term. They're going to help build the foundation for long-term sustainability. But in the definition of this conversation, they're short-term. Sustainable is long-term. It means you can create success over and over and over again. That's a lot harder. And that's what, when people first start out in their journey of becoming a remodeling contractor or opening a business of any size, of any type, they don't understand that when you start, you need to have a long-term vision because it's going to be exhausting. It's going to test you, and it's going to help you become the person you want to be to make that sustainable, successful business. If you are sustainable, you are not a flash in the pan. I love this definition. I did a lot of research on this, which is why it's not flowing off my tongue. I did a lot of research, and one definition I liked best of sustain was to be able to be maintained at a certain rate without exhausting current resources or jeopardizing the future generations who might depend on those resources. So if you think about your own company, which may, I hope, be growing successfully now in this amazing economy, one of the things you don't want to deplete is your cash. One of the things you don't want to deplete is the morale of your employees. And another thing you don't want to deplete is your own energy. So these things are going to define sustainability in the long run, is the ability to maintain success without exhausting your current resources or exhausting the resources of the next generation. Next, five stages of growth, my favorite, favorite topic. When this company that I first worked with was about to go under, and I was astonished at how it could happen to these very intelligent people who could sell anything to anybody, I read an article in the Harvard Business Review in May of 1983, and it's still on my website. There's a, a link to a video that I did on this topic. It says, every single company goes through five stages of business growth. They're 100% predictable, and it doesn't matter if you run a remodeling company, you have a small consulting practice, 
or your GE or the military. They have to go through these five predictable stages of growth, and each stage has systems that are appropriate to that stage and has obstacles that have to be overcome and things that have to be learned in order to succeed. Now let me ask you this, how many people here feel like their businesses are in a bit of chaos right now? There's a lot of business. Yeah, yours is, I know yours is. Yours is too. Well, one of the things that happens is between each one of these stages, there is a phase that is either revolutionary or evolutionary. So if everything's working really, really well at a given stage, the business is generating good profits, the business is going along easily, systems are, being, uh, systems are applicable to the current stage of the business, and things are working well. But when you go between one stage and another, chaos reigns, systems can't handle the change, and employee morale falls, gross profit tends to fall, and it's called the revolutionary phase. So if you're interested in this topic, which I think can help illuminate where you and your company might be currently, it's on my website, which is remodelservices.com. I should have put that in this note. And it's down on the bottom left-hand side, and there's a video about five stages of growth. We're going to be using that as we go through this conversation today, talking about where you are right now, predicts where you can go next, and what you need to handle in order to successfully make that change. This is one of my newer concepts. I really like it a lot. Upstream, downstream. We can talk all day about the problems that exist currently in our organization or in our neighborhood, in our family, in the world. It doesn't matter. But we want to differentiate between what's the cause of the problem and what's the effect. So if we spend all of our time working on the effect, we might miss the opportunity to make a bigger change, to correct a lot more things at once if we look upstream and diagnose the problem upstream. So I don't know if everybody here knows what slippage is, but it's one of my favorite terms. My uh, friend Tim Fowler was just here, and we always spend a lot of time talking about uh, slippage. Slippage is the difference between what you bid the job at and what it finally comes in at, right? In my logic, slippage should be no more than 2% difference, plus or minus, than your original estimate. So slippage can come from a lot of different places. It can come from bad sales process, bad estimating, lack of change order control. It can come, too, from having new employees on your staff that haven't been trained in the way your company does things. So if you want to solve slippage, for example, or any other problem, look upstream to which of the primary drivers of the slippage are the most important and solve those. And then the downstream effect will fall into place. And to do that, you use the 80-20 rule. I've used the 80-20 rule all my life. I raised my kids using the 80-20 rule. It says you get 80% of the value from 20% of the input. And I have a couple really good examples of that. So if you think of the five cost types, labor, material, equipment, subcontract, and other, if you use the 80-20 rule, only one of those is going to have the biggest risk to your company, the biggest magnitude of potential obstacles for going forward. If you're a field employee-based company, it's definitely that. It's labor every single time. But if you're a subcontract-based company, it's change order control. So that's using the 80-20 rule to define which one of the operators of any given problem you should look at first. And if we go back 
to the slippage issue, you can do a brainstorm with your people. You can have everybody jump in and give ideas as what do you think is causing the slippage? This helps your employees get engaged. And is the slippage bad estimating? I know owners of companies who always say, I could hang that door in half an hour and it's taking you two hours to do it and I think it's because you don't know what you're doing. I'm a perfectly fine estimator. It's not that. It might be a combination of things. So if you use the 80-20 rule, and drill down to what the biggest determinant of the problem is, you won't spend your time testing a bunch of other alternatives only to find out you don't even have any idea which really is. Which leads me to another comment. A lot of people are trying to grow their companies right now. Growing your company is really difficult, especially in the midst of growth. Growth is dangerous and risky, and I don't particularly like it, but everybody else seems to, but then they're younger than I am. Um, if you're going to grow your company and you're going to try to resolve an issue, you want to work on a change initiative to resolve one issue at a time and give it three months to test it and, and get feedback and see if it's actually working. Otherwise, you might try two or three different things and you'll have no idea what's working and what isn't. So when we talk about how to approach developing the, these three gears that put together will help you build a successful, sustainable company, keep in mind that we're going to be using the concept of the five stages of growth, what works for you at your company stage, the 80-20 rule to drill down to what's most important in this change initiative. We're going to also simple, uh, use the upstream and downstream. And we're now going to go on to the discussion of the three gears. The gears within the gears, I'm sure you understand this analogy. When Corey and I first started talking about this, I had about 10 or 12 different gears I wanted to talk about. He said, oh, don't. You only have a little bit of time. Keep it down to three gears, let's say. And I went, that's going to be really, really hard. Because as you know, in all of life and as well as in your company, this giant organism that you have created, this organization, has big gears and little gears and the little gears support the big gears. We're only going to be talking about the big gears now because they have the ability to drive the biggest and the best and the most sustainable results. So I want to talk about briefly complicated versus complex because you're dealing with both of them when you run a company. Complicated is a series of processes which have to be delineated, trained, and defined clearly, that's complicated. Complex takes those processes and adds what are called emergent behaviors, things you can't predict. So you've got what you can predict, the processes, right? How many people sat at their desk and wrote, written a perfect process for either a lead intake or a change order control? I'm sure you all have. That's complicated. But then you add complexity of dealing with personal relationships. You add the complexity of dealing with the owner, the client, the lead carpenter on the job. You're making it complex. So when you have complicated and complex together, it's a really difficult system to organize. That's why I love remodeling and I love remodelers. Because it is complex, it is complicated, but remodelers have the interests of the homeowners at the forefront of their mind if they're going to be successful all the time. Remodelers work in the heart of the home. 
they have great hearts themselves, and they can handle the complexity of personal relationships because that's who they are. You're looking suspicious. Let's see, let's get to the heart of it. Okay, here's the heart of it. There are three primary gears. Customer satisfaction first, net profit second, sustainability as a vision third. We're gonna be talking about each one of these in a little bit of detail, and I wanna tell you right now that each one, these are big concepts, they're theories, but they can drive your company to short-term success and they can allow it to be long-term sustainable. Each has to be measurable, process-driven, and have a clear line of sight upstream. As we go through this conversation, I'm gonna show you what I mean by each of these attributes. First, customer satisfaction. So I thought this was great. As I was doing research, McKinsey defined customer satisfaction as having three components. The primary, and each one had to be consistent. And it had to be consistent through the customer journey, the emotional message, and communication. Now this is all theoretical. But remember what we're gonna be talking about is how do you apply actions to the theory? So when we talk about the customer journey, sit back for a minute and see, think about what you think that means in your company. I remember Paul Winans, if you know Paul Winans, he also writes another column in Remodeling Magazine. And uh, I've been friends with him for years and I think the world of him. He trained the person who, his office manager, who picked up the phone for every single client phone call, for every single vendor phone call. He trained her to answer the phone with a smile. He put a mirror in front of her right where the phone was and it said smile, and it made a difference because every single person who called in at that, mo at that moment, regardless of where she was in her life or in her day or anything, they were greeted with a smile because they had been trained that we wanna answer the very first call from anybody with a smile. Now, as somebody who has worked in bookkeeping departments all over the country, I know sometimes that bookkeepers aren't exactly the right people to invite to do that work. Who's laughing? <laughs> so compare that uh, example of Paul Winan's uh, woman to the example of the crotchety old bookkeeper who if I was doing anything else but this, I'd be a crotchety old bookkeeper. Yeah, what do you want? Now, that's the beginning of the customer journey, right? Is that how you want to present you and your company? So my, my young son, who is the actor, told me once that there's backstage and front stage, and I don't care. When you're running a business, you are front stage. You're front stage with your employees, you're front stage with your clients, you're front stage with your vendors, and when you go into your office by yourself, I know some people who have done this, you can go like this and you can scream and shout, but you can't do that to the front of the stage because you are, mo I bet you know that really, really well, right? How many people do you manage? There you go. And you've got to be front stage with them so they see you as an example to be followed. And that's what you've got to be during the customer journey and during the employee journey as well. So that's a customer journey and consistent. The second is the emotional message. Why do most people buy remodeling? Because they have a dream that they want realized, right? This is entirely different than working with insurance, restoration contractors. Don't get me started on them. But 
they, they go into a potential remodel from the point of view of tragedy. You go into the point of view of meeting a dream and making a dream come true and changing their lives by the space that you're changing. This is really powerful. And the emotional message that you're giving to the client the first time you meet them has to not only be powerful, but it has to be consistent throughout. And that has to be consistent not just from you, but with your employees and from your subcontractors, from your lead carpenters, from your communications that you send to them. So, and you know that really well. I know you do that really, really well, April. So the emotional message and consistency in the emotional message is really important as well. Last but not least, and this is one of those words that's so overused and it's not applied as well as it should be by any of us because it's a long learning curve. Communication. If you think of all the things in your company or in your neighborhood or with your family that provides problems and obstacles that you have to overcome, communication is often the biggest one. You think you're saying the same thing, but the other person heard it entirely differently. Or you think you said that, but you didn't. You just thought about it really hard and you hoped you said it, right? So the consistency of the communication combined with the emotional message that it protects and contains, as well as representing the customer journey, this is important stuff. And it leads to greater customer satisfaction. So why is customer satisfaction so important that I spent all this time on it? I believe that if you got great customer satisfaction, and that's entirely different than good customer satisfaction. If you've got great customer satisfaction, you will create a buzz in your small community. I haven't seen remodelers anywhere across the country that have a significant part of the market share but they can have a substantial buzz in a very small market that over time can keep sustain them, that they can slowly raise their prices, that they continue to work with other people who they like. How many people here, I know some of you have, how many people here have had a client once that they called crazy or, <laughs> or difficult? Or I can't wait to get done with that job, they're driving me crazy, has anybody said that? So you don't want to work with our friends, do you? No, because usually crazy people hang around with other crazy people, right? So the idea of good customer satisfaction is you create it in this marketplace, those people will send you their friends. And the crazy people will send their friends to somebody else, which is what you want, because it's going to make your life and their life much better. That's the first reason that customer satisfaction is so important to me. The second reason is because if you've got good customer satisfaction, you can tend and you've got good systems in place and good employees implementing good systems, you can tend, tend to make better gross profit. The job will go more smoothly, the change orders will be signed and approved, you'll be able to keep to the schedule, and you will end up with a happy client. All those things equal good gross profit. So customer satisfaction, in my mind, is the very top uh, or the very bottom of the pyramid, if you want to say it, the foundational element that can drive everything else towards short-term success and long-term sustainability. It's got to be measurable, remember? How many people here use Guild Quality? Good, thank you, one. Guild Quality is uh, 
quality survey company out of Atlanta, and I think they're fabulous. I get no money from them. They don't pay me. I don't get a referral fee. But I think they do one of the best jobs of any company I've ever seen doing only remodeling surveys for client satisfaction. They use the net promoter score, the net promoter score you all are familiar with, even though you didn't know that's what it was called. It's at the end of every single instance you use some app. How likely are you to recommend us to your friends? Bang. It measures that answer only, and then it calculates whether or not you have a high net promoter score or you have a low, because as it says, it only takes, on a scale of 1 to 10, it only takes the top two and counts that as positive, and then it takes the bottom six and counts that as negative. So as you probably know very well, every negative comment goes to seven people. Every positive comment goes to one or two. So you want to have a good net promoter score, and you also want to know why anyone is not giving you a good score. So this is one thing I think Guild Quality does really, really well. Do you guys use Guild Quality? You have, yeah. I know many good successful companies that say, yeah, we send out these things at the end of every job and we ask what they think, and they don't get a very good return. They get like a 50% return if they're doing really, really well. I want to see a 95% return and I want to see every single client surveyed because I want to know not just what did we do well, but what can we do better because that really tells people that you're paying attention to everything. And last but not least, customer satisfaction is process-driven. Every single part of this conversation is process-driven, even though it's highly theoretical. And when I talked about the customer journey on the first slide here, I think the processes should have kind of explained themselves. The first process is the marketing process. Who are you targeting to bring those good clients to your door? And how do you tell them exactly what it is you're doing and what you don't do? Yesterday I was talking to a client. She spent the last year and a half pulling together this really complicated CRM program to tell her how many leads she got, where they came from, what they wanted to say. She said 50% of our leads are wasted. 50% of our leads, we would never ever do those jobs. We don't do interior basement waterproofing. We don't work on rental units, right? So I said, your marketing is terrible, obviously, if you're getting 50% rotten leads. And she said, no, my marketing is really good. We worked really hard on it. We paid a lot of money. Look at what you're getting. It's terrible. So you want to get good marketing that targets the people you're talking to. I know a guy um, in the East Coast who used to show me this definition of their target client. They had two Volvos. Their kids were both in college. They were both professionals. They paid X for their house in Y year. And they belonged to, obviously, the symphony or something like that. But they knew everything about these people. And they could target not just the zip codes, but they could target the street and the addresses that met that criteria. Now, it took them about 15 years to put that information together. But he was, by far, the best um, marketer I have ever seen. He's probably close to my age, he's still doing it, and he's still targeting a little discrete change from that, a little bit older people, and then a couple, few younger people, but he knows exactly who he wants to sell to, and he does a great job of marketing to them. So the salespeople take these great leads, and then they convert them into great clients. 
I can't tell you how many times I've gone out to somebody's office and they've said, oh, I can't, I can't possibly, I've got to go meet all these potential clients. And I said, what do you mean? Well, I go see every single lead who calls. And I go, shoot me, why? <laughs> the chances of you working well with every single person who calls you is about as likely as getting married to every single person you've ever dated. It's not, just probably not gonna work. A remodeling project is complicated, it's stressful. It puts stress on the clients, on their children, on their dogs and cats, and it puts stress on you and the people who work for you, potentially. So you wanna work with people you can work well with and make money with and give value to. So that means you don't go see everybody because you can't possibly meet that for everybody. Estimating develops the right price. I used to love estimating because it takes all these tiny little pieces of information and puts them together into a whole that should be reliable. But when owners transfer estimating to some other person than the owner, it's tremendously dangerous. Because remember what I said about that door? They always say, I did that door in a half an hour. Why does it take you two? So I think estimating is the first thing. It's a stage two to stage three transition you start to offload estimating from the owner of the company, late stage two, early stage three, and it's one of the most important positions you can hire for because it's the uh, integration between the sales process and the production process. And there's a lot of finger pointing potential in that process that can be minimized with good estimating. The production delivers on time and on budget. There are a lot of assumptions in this, aren't there? Production delivers on time and on budget. If they've got good plans, if they've got a good estimate, if the client's reasonable, if it doesn't snow and there's no earthquake. So there are a lot of assumptions that everything is going well, but that's what happens. And then last but not least, the sales team stays in touch with the client. That means we've closed the circle. We've finished the emotional journey of the client, right? Because we go back and we stay in touch with them years later. And a line of sight upstream. This is the most important thing, I think, in understanding customer satisfaction. The line of sight upstream is if you've got happy employees, you can have happy clients. If you've got unhappy employees, if they're not paid well, if they're not trained well, if they don't think they're succeeding, and if they are in a company culture that is less than uplifting, positive, we can do this, Client satisfaction will fall, gross profit will fall, and you will be existing in chaos. So I just wrote a column for Remodeling Magazine that came out in June. That's the column I've got the second most comments on about how important it is to take money off the table and to build a culture that has other things. You have to pay them enough. There's no doubt about it. But once the money is off the table, then you can build the culture that supports the people in a larger way than just the money. Net profit. Net profit is gear number two. And what net profit means is it means, so easy, right? So hard to actually achieve. It means everything left over from the income that the company derives from the work that they sell to the public after paying all the expenses of the company. And it's surprising to me how few business owners at the beginning of their careers even think this is important. It's critically important that you have a really good understanding of what your finances are, of what your overhead is, of what gross profit is, 
and what income truly is. And net profits, to me, are like a warm, fuzzy blanket in the winter when you're freezing cold. You wrap them around you. It protects you. You feel safe. If you've got net profits, you're going to be OK if you know why you've got net profits. You can share with a larger community, which one more time gives you greater customer recognition in that larger community and also provides those people a way to get to know you. Happier employees, retirement savings, increased equity. These things are all good. They come from net profit. It's measurable. And one thing I wanted to say about measurable for financial reporting is that most people get a profit and loss. Most people get job cost reporting, but few people look at their cash flow. And right now, cash flow to me is of ultimate importance. And it's of ultimate importance because growth eats cash for breakfast. So if you do not have a good handle on your cash flow and you're growing and you're very excited about your growth, if this growth slows down at all, you could very easily be in a big cash flow crunch and not even see it coming. So I'm going to, I do not mean to be Debbie Downer, but I want people to look at their cash flow every week to make sure that they know over the next three months, do I have enough to sustain me? Can I continue to grow? Should I back off a little, raise my prices? Volume is less important than net profit. That's what that first job I was uh, working for taught me. Because those guys were chasing volume. They could sell anything to anybody. They weren't worrying about the profit. They were just worrying about what they could sell. So most of the remodeling companies I know, and I've facilitated for Remodelers Advantage since 2002. So I'm really talking about, I think, a very high level of remodeling. People who actually know their numbers and things, they seek to run a high margin, low volume model rather than a high volume, low margin. So they get margins of 35 plus percent gross margin, and they get 10 per, 8 to 10 percent, which is a good goal of net profit. It's process driven. Is anybody going to question the fact that you, when you produce financial reports, job cost reports, or cash flow, they are process driven. And they're not only just process driven, but this is the important part of it. Those processes are run by somebody who really knows what they're doing. When I first started doing this, I did a lot of bookkeeping. And then I moved out of bookkeeping into doing a kind of coaching the bookkeepers. And somebody would say to me, oh, don't even talk to me about that. I don't want to know anything about that. I hate that stuff. Talk to my girl. And it would make me so mad. First of all, it made me mad because they didn't respect their numbers and they didn't respect the money that it was possible to generate. So therefore, they weren't taking care of their future. They weren't taking care of their employees' future. And they were running the risk of failure. And that's, that's not what we want for anybody. So it's process driven. I want to note the last thing. I've worked with a lot of people over the years who could put together nice company budgets, who are really, really happy to look at job cost reports, who understand cash flow. And then I come in the next month, and they got a bobcat sitting out front. And I go, what do you need a bobcat for? Oh, I'm, I'm really busy. I wanted a bobcat. Great. Or you go into the office, and they got this absolutely huge, giant color printer. I go, what do you need a color printer for? Why? Oh, we're doing so well, I need a color printer. Now you know they're not going to use a bobcat. They're not going to use a color printer more than a couple times a year. It's just something that the owner wanted. So one of the things that I find most interesting is all these other systems can be working really, really well. But if the owner isn't paying attention to the profit that they're keeping in the business, then the whole 
house of cards could come tumbling down. Now, comes back to you. You are the silver bullet. The line of sight upstream is the owner's understanding of their financial reports. This is important, not just as an owner of a company, but as an adult. It's really important to understand how money works and how it flows and how you can save it, how you can make it, how you can protect it. Because I guarantee in a long life, you're going to have ups and downs. So this is of critical importance. So business sustainability represents resiliency over time. I'm going to talk about this really pretty fast. So how many people here know, the, know Tom Kelly? Neil Kelly, right? Everybody here should know Neil Kelly. What a phenomenal company. Probably about 10 years ago when I was facilitating for the highest level of remodelers advantage, all the four mentor groups went to see Neil Kelly and we got to ask Tom Kelly any question we wanted to. And what blew me away, what I will never forget, is he said, we made money when we doubled our volume in one year, which I think is crazy risky. And we made money 10 years later when the economy fell out of the bottom and it, we went down to 25 or 30% of what we were the previous year. And I went, you made money in both those very risky situations? That really is resiliency. So I can't say that you won't go through a period where you'll lose money. I can't say that you won't have problems in producing your jobs all the time where you wanted them. But I can say that if you focus on resiliency and do a whole bunch of what ifs, what if the economy falters? What if I don't get that big job? What if we have an earthquake? Call sound seismic, right? What if any of these other things that could happen, what if we have taken into consideration what would I do if I only had half the work that I currently have? What would I do if I had double the work? I'd say raise your prices and don't take any more work. It's measurable. To me, a predictable, sustainable company does not have growth prof gross profit numbers that go like that. It's not a roller coaster. It should be plus or minus 2% of what we budgeted every single month, and that is sustainable. And it's process driven. This is the point. This is the silver bullet. The line of sight for sustainability is the owner's leadership abilities. If the owner works on becoming a better leader, a more inspiring leader, a, a better motivator of people, a better example to himself or herself, guess what this person will be? They'll be mature. They'll be happy. They won't be scared they have, will have solved the hardest part of the entire process of building a sustainable company. So, the silver bullet is you. You take good care of your employees, they'll take care of your clients. You take care of your net profit and your equity. You start with a long-term vision and develop your company so that it can be sustainable, resilient, and successful. Thank you.